So I love story. Um, I'm your right-brained type of person, not if you throw numbers or uh, different type of like sciencey things at me, uh, I might get easily overwhelmed with that. But if you, you know, let me go through an art museum or read a good book or something like that, that's that's a little bit more how my brain is inclined. Uh, and my whole life, I've loved story. Uh, in particular, a couple of films. This came out a little bit grainier than I hoped, but. Uh, you know, stories like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or even kind of your Marvel superhero movies that are going on, you know, like, like the 20-something film is about to come out this month. Uh, and one of the things that I always enjoy so much about big sagas like these is the way that you see how an author has intricately woven different storylines together and really even the foreshadowing here. I, Early on in a story, something is planted, and then later on you see it come to its flourishing, right? You know, the very first Marvel movie, you know, the Iron Man, you've got like Nick Fury who shows up at the end, and you kind of hint at this whole Avengers thing, and then now we've got these epic movies where they're bringing them all together. Or, you know, the first Star Wars movie, we think Darth Vader is the ultimate villain against Luke Skywalker, and then towards the end of Empire Strikes Back, we find out he's actually his dad, you know, and how it all ties together. And then we go to prequels, and we see how we got there. And uh, my personal favorite is Lord of the Rings. And just seeing that, that journey of Sam and Frodo and how, you know, Sam is just Frodo's gardener and they're, they're close friends. And as Frodo's setting out on this journey, he makes a promise to take care of his friend through the journey, which ultimately ends in this kind of epic moment as they take the ring to Mordor. And it, Sam is literally carrying Frodo on his back up the side of the mountain. And you just see how these stories interconnect and really, even though in, in a brief chapter or page, it seems like it's an isolated story, we can zoom back out and see kind of the epic tale or the saga that's at play here. And, and I feel like uh, often in scripture, we lose sight of that. We lose sight of the fact that God is telling one big story. That yes, there are these, you know, uh, individual movies or individual books and even within that there are acts and scenes and individual pages that tell a particular plot line but to zoom back out and to see that God is truly sharing uh, a big story about himself is really important to be able to do you know uh, the Bible is God revealing himself to mankind that he has not stayed distant or um, somehow unknowable or unapproachable. He has laid himself out there before us in word and revealed himself. Really, the purpose of this class is to help us understand the Bible as a whole better, but then also the individual books of the Bible better, to kind of see how uh, each one is interconnected and relate to each other and how they're telling those kind of bigger, that bigger story, but then also to give you the tools to be able to step back into these individual books or kind of storylines to understand them a little bit more for yourself. So there's gonna be times where I'm, I'm zooming in on a book, and then there's gonna be times where I'm gonna be pulling right back out to the full narrative of scripture to kind of help you see how all of these things tie together. Uh, we will also conduct kind of a brief 
survey of each genre or literary style in scripture. So that way those tools really kind of go beyond just um, key ideas, but really how do you approach different genres of scripture? So that way, even though we can't get into every nook and cranny of the Bible in this class, hopefully you have the tools to be able to step out of here and do it for yourself and to be able to dive into God's word. Uh, I, I do like to put this little kind of disclaimer. Uh, this is not an extensive or exhaustive survey of the scriptures. Uh, that would be a really long class, right? We would need eight BI classes for me to just spend 10 minutes on each book of the Bible. Uh, and we have five for our purposes. So there's going to be times where I'm, I'm booking, and then there's going to be times where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow back down because I think it's a key idea that we need to kind of flush out a little bit more. Um, and hopefully, again, you have those tools to be able to, to go in and to dive in a little bit deeper. When we talk about the major theme, the major story of Scripture, uh, one word comes to mind, kind of one idea of uh, what it is the story that God is telling. And it's very obvious that from the very beginning of Scripture, God is telling a story of redemption. This big story of the Bible is a redemptive story. that We see the redemptive theme all the way throughout Scripture. And one of the reasons why I've recommended the book Unlimited Grace to you is I feel like Brian Chappell does a really good job of helping us understand why that is important, that we see that in Scripture. And then he kind of breaks the book into two parts. You know, one, why is it important? And then the second part is he's going to tell you how do you use that? How do you apply that into your life? And how is that kind of helpful in your everyday walk with the Lord? Now, uh, when we look at redemptive theme of Scripture, um, one of the things that uh, we find is that there's a lot of theology found in there. Uh, another kind of uh, term that's used for a class like this is a, is a biblical theology class. Uh, Pastor Scott teaches a systematic theology class, and kind of the idea behind systematic theology is we take the various topics of Scripture, Holy Spirit, salvation, um, Christology, you know, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And uh, we kind of have these boxes. And then all the different scripture that speaks to those topics are found inside of those boxes. So systematic theology goes through, all right, we're going to pull up this box, and we're going to look through that. It's systematized. Biblical theology endeavors to go through the whole Bible, and then as we go through the Bible, point out, hey, there's that theology. Hey, there's this one. Oh, see how this relates to Holy Spirit? Do you see how this relates to Christ? And begins to tie that all together. So what we're endeavoring to do in this class is a little bit of a biblical theology, but then also a survey of the Bible, going all the way through each book of the Bible. So we walk out with just kind of a basic understanding of each book. This graph is kind of a helpful one, uh, and I'll reference it all the way throughout. Uh, and I will put all my slides out on there on our hub group so that way you have access to our slides. One of the things that you see, uh, first and foremost, is God in eternal glory. Right? That God is eternal, eternally existing. He has no beginning, he has no end. 
and that in that he exists eternally in his glory, right? That God is a glorious God. And all throughout, he's showing his glory to himself, to the world, and to us individually. And that you will see that all the way throughout. And just kind of these special little moments, you see the glory of God revealed as a key theme. And the fact that God is eternal really establishes him as the main character of our story, right? Every story has a hero. Every story has that main character. God is the main character of the Bible. He is the hero. He is our protagonist all throughout Scripture. Uh, and that's really important. Sometimes we may get that a little mixed up. We might try and view Scripture as ourselves being the, the main character, ourselves being the protagonist. We might project ourselves onto David, or we might project ourselves onto Peter. Uh, but ultimately, that is not the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture is God revealing himself to us. God is the main character of Scripture. And so one of the things that we see is that God creates. He creates the whole world. He sees that it is good, but then a good creation is marred by evil, right? Man chooses to rebel against his creator and ultimately establishes the conflict, right? So any good story has a conflict, right? Uh, we have good versus evil. We've got the dark side of the force versus the, the good side of the force, light side of the force. And balance must come to the universe, right? We've got a, a ring of power that is going to, if it falls in the wrong hands, will destroy all of Middle Earth. And so that ring must be destroyed, right? We've got to have a conflict. What is the conflict of Scripture? Conflict of Scripture is the fact that God created everything. He created it to be good. And from a human perspective, he created us to have a harmonious relationship with him. But we created the conflict. We forged the one ring. We sinned against God. We rebelled against him and broke the relationship with him. There's our conflict. A glorious, eternal God creates man in his image to have a relationship with him, and man breaks that relationship. What is God going to do? That's the question of Scripture, right? That's the, the driving what all the way through every page, every story. Who is God? And what is man before God, his creator? And so we see evil progressively overcome, right? All throughout Scripture, we see God overcoming evil on our behalf to draw us to himself. And anytime man tries to do this all on his own, we fail miserably. And so ultimately, it's setting up the fact that we need a redeemer, one hero to come in with all of the superpowers of all the superheroes to save us from our conflict, that rebellion against God. And ultimately what we see is a full completion of this story and the fact that God completes and perfects his creation. Jesus comes back and brings a new heaven and new earth, which ushers in a time of, of peace eternally that returns us back to where God had intended all of this to start. And that ultimately God and his people live eternally enjoying his glory.
That, that's the full story of the scriptures, is that we're returning back to the garden. But what's so amazing about God's story is, you know, a lot of times in these epic tales, uh, we are trying to return back to how things were before the conflict started. And often at the end of the story, the events are so evil or so difficult to overcome that the main characters can't truly return back to the way things were, right? You see this so well put out in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and that Frodo never recovers and ultimately has to be taken off to the Grey Havens, that things just aren't always returning back to where they were. What's the beauty of God's story? It's the beauty of the, the ultimate story is the fact that things don't just return to the way they were, right? Things aren't marred by evil. Things return to something even better than before, right? Before we were in a beautiful, perfect garden, we will end in a beautiful, perfect new earth with a glorious city with Jesus at the center. Previously, we were friends with God who walked with him in the early cool of morning. But at the end of the story, we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. We end up in an even better place at the end of the story if we believe in the hero, if we trust in Jesus Christ as the one who saves us. So every story of Scripture comes back to this redemptive theme, pulls us up to remember that a glorious, eternal God created us to have a harmonious relationship with him. We rebelled against him in conflict, and God is seeking to redeem us back to himself and to restore things to a place that is even better than how they started off. We will dive into this more and more uh, as we uh, kind of go all the way throughout. Let's turn here to the Old Testament. This is where we will start. Um, my goal is to try and walk through um, at least how our, our Bibles lay it out. Um, as you can kind of see in the Old Testament, uh, we have uh, kind of our central timeline of story goes straight through here. We have Genesis, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. Now, uh, of course, in there is the rest of the Pentateuch, so it relates to all of the Pentateuch, which is where we are going to spend the majority of our time tonight talking about the Pentateuch, uh, which are the first five books of the Bible. First and Second Chronicles kind of fill in some details of first, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So that's why when you read through First and Second Chronicles, you might go, "Have I heard this story before?" This sounds familiar. Yeah, probably. So what's happening is uh, people who lived through this time period after the exile come back and write the story again from a slightly different perspective, having kind of gone, you know, gone back. So it's kind of the difference between somebody who wrote a World War II memoir right at the end of the war or maybe a World War II vet living today who's only maybe got a few years left of life, he's writing his memoir now. Looking back at the same time period, but maybe that perspective has slightly changed. Maybe the things that they highlight or draw their attention to may shift ever so slightly. 
The storyline kind of continues through our prophets, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Jonah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi. Those are our major and minor prophets. Major and minor have nothing to do with their significance. All right? Poor Amos, he's not a minor guy. It's just his, the size of his book is a little bit shorter. And then the major guys, we call them a major prophet because their books are a little bit longer. Right? has nothing to do with significance. They're doing something a little bit different. They're not as focused on the storyline, the events that are happening. Though, we do get some storyline out of them. We do see a progression of what is happening with God's people during this time. But ultimately, what they're more concerned about is making sure God's glory is known in the life of his people. And so they're going to take a slightly different approach to that. And we'll touch on that. Yellow is our poetry books. Uh, these are the books of wisdom. Psalms is found all the way throughout, right? We have psalms that are written all the way during the time of Moses, uh, and then psalms written by David and Solomon and not some of the other kings. Uh, other books of poetry are Proverbs, Song of Solomon's, Ecclesiastes, and one of my personal favorites, Lamentations, is a book of poetry. And as you hear me kind of walk through this kind of progression of the Old Testament, uh, you're really hearing the three major literary styles of the Bible. Uh, yes, there are literary styles in Scripture. Um, we can kind of help, it helps us in our interpretation when we have kind of an understanding of, hey, this is the type of passage that I'm reading, or this is the type of Scripture I'm looking at right now. The first one is narrative. What do you think of when I say narrative? What would be a narrative? A story. A story. Anybody who tells a story, right? This can um, you know, be a fiction or a nonfiction, right? A narrative is something that is telling us a story, point A to point B. What we will most commonly refer to in the literary style in scripture is what we'll actually call this a historical narrative. A historical narrative. Why is it important that we clarify that it is a historical narrative? It actually happened. It is an actual account, right? This is what separates um, scripture from mythology. That's why, you know, the Bible is a little bit different than the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and in fact, what's so interesting about this is uh, this is, that concept is what J.R.R. Tolkien used to convert or to lead C.S. Lewis to the Lord. There's this famous kind of discourse or conversation that they had where Lewis, a student of mythology, Greek mythology, um, kept coming back to Tolkien going, I feel like all stories are pointing to some greater story. Why does all story kind of follow a similar arc? And Tolkien used that concept of the, the true myth, the true narrative, the historical narrative that is the story from which all other stories flow out of. And it's very important to kind of understand that, that scripture at its core, the majority of it, is a historical narrative. God is telling you a true story that actually happened, and he's using 
very creative literary devices in order to do that. So there are there's elements of, of setting. Right? Where this takes place is important, whether it's before an ocean or on top of a mountain. A character, right? whether we're, we're talking with um, a pagan pharaoh or we're talking about a lost Hebrew. Characters play an important role in all of this. The other element or style within scripture is poetry. Uh, I love, 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 love uh, poetry of scripture. And uh, one of the things that I always find interesting is a lot of people don't realize how much poetry is in the Bible. Okay, One third of all scripture is poetry. One third of all scripture is poetry. Now, that means a lot of the poetry actually resides outside of what we would call the poetic books. If you have an ESV translation of the Bible, or, or some of the other translations will do this, where it indents the words in, on your page, where you can kind of see the indentations kind of move in, that's signaling to you, the reader, that's a piece of poetry. That's a moment of poetry in God's Word. So you will find poetry pretty much in every book of the Bible. You will find poetry. You'll see people pausing for a song or just a, a word of prose that comes out. Uh, in Genesis, we see that the very first words of man recorded is a poem. Adam speaks a poem, the very first words. The third category, the third style of scripture is discourse, right? Discourse is um, that kind of handing down of information, lecture or just kind of download of information. Um, the discourse that comes out, we see this in the prophets, um, as they just kind of thus saith the Lord. Uh, and we will see this uh, a lot in the New Testament, right? The New Testament has a lot of discourse where we download this information and say, here is what this looks like. So we're not necessarily telling a story, nor are we speaking in poetry, though we might find both of those elements within that. Ultimately, the purpose of one of those books would be, here is what this looks like. Right? Because God is telling a story of redemption, because he's redeemed you to himself, this looks like that. And that is what we will see in Scripture. So ultimately, we can see that these are the three major themes of, or sorry, literary styles in the Bible. Any questions there? I can get on a roll, so I'm going to stop every once in a while. All right, let's, uh, let's look on, on uh, how I break down the books of the Bible. Um, there are lots of different creative ways um, to kind of view or categorize the different books of the Bible, uh, and that's good. Um, because of the uniqueness of how God has written this, there are multiple ways to kind of break this down into more digestible bites, right? I mean, we can break it down to 66 individual books, or we can say Old or New Testament. Um, you can kind of take the Old Testament into the Tanakh, the three sections. Or There's multiple different ways that we can kind of break this down here a little bit. For our purposes, so we kind of speak from a similar set of terms, here's how I'm breaking this down. First is the Pentateuch. This is pretty common. Penta means five, right? So the first five books of the Bible, or what the uh, Hebrew Bible might call the Torah. Right, the original five books. 
The next ones are the historical books. This is when we are actually going through the historical narrative of the people of Israel. So Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, those types of books where we're just telling you the story of God's people. The third category is poetry and wisdom. Those are those books that are focused more on the wisdom of God or such topics. It's told specifically through poetry. Psalms is a good example of that. The other category would be prophets, all of the prophets. And these are the individuals appointed to declare the glory and message of God. An important thing to highlight here, please do not view prophet as the idea of predicting the future. Uh, that's really only about 20% of their job. Uh, the majority of their job is focused on just simply declaring the truth of God. God shows up to them and says, here's this message, go give it to them. And that is the job of the prophet. So view them more as a proclaimer and not as much as a predictor. Does that make sense? Uh, and then in the New Testament, there's lots of ways we can do this, but we're going to do it this way. We're going to look at the Gospels and Acts. Gospels and Acts serve as biographies. So we're going to be looking at the five biographies that start the New Testament, the Gospels and Acts. And then the Epistles. Epistles is just a fancy word for letters, right? Letters written to somebody. Uh, the rest of the New Testament is a series of letters. They are all written from someone to someone. Um, their subject matter vary, but ultimately each of them serve as a letter or as an epistle. So that's how we're going to view them. So tonight uh, we'll, we're going to be looking at the Pentateuch, and then in the remainder of our classes we will be quickly making our way through these. So you can see, um, you know, we'll have a whole class on the prophets. We're going to be we're going to be moving a whole class on the epistles in the New Testament. Uh, we'll be really booking it through there. So let's look at characteristics of uh, um, the Pentateuch. Uh, before we dive into that, or if I'm in the right spot. Yep, yeah, no, I am. Uh, first thing to understand about the Pentateuch, right? Uh, when you think of these first five books of the Bible, um, what are some of the things that come to mind, maybe descriptors of, of the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. What comes to mind? Old. Old. Really old. Really old. I mean, it's like at least 3,000, 4,000 years old by now. I mean, like uh, harsh. Harsh? I think harsh. Yeah. Beginnings. Beginnings, right? This is where this starts, right? So everything kind of flows back from that. Miraculous. There's big miracles that happen in the Pentateuch. Law. That was kind of one of the things that's I was thinking. That's what you mean by heart, <laughs> as we think of law. And that's really the first characteristic that I want us to look at is the legal languages, right? The legal langu language of laws, law codes, and treaties. This is actually something that is very interesting about the Pentateuch, that in our modern Western minds, we miss. We miss. Um, the Pentateuch is structured in such a way where it follows 
the law codes and treaties of the ancient Near East. In fact, one of the kind of um, uh, sources or proofs of the historical nature of the Pentateuch is the fact that it so closely mirrors other societies and civilizations of the time, their law codes and treaties. There are moments of scripture where we can take a, a Hittite law code and set it right next to Deuteronomy, and their structures mirror each other. And there's no way that that can be coincidental, except for the fact this people group literally lived right next door to the, this people group, that they shared culture. So that ancient Near Eastern, that kind of whole area is what we would call the ancient Near East, uh, they had a set of styles in their law codes and their treaties. And so a major part of the Pentateuch is the fact that this people group, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, are establishing their laws for themselves and their treaties and connections to other people groups. And so naturally, since this is a historical narrative, it mirrors the other histories of other peoples there. And so archaeology has proven that these have to have some element of historicity or proven to be historical uh, because they so perfectly mirror the other structures of the time. Now, of course, uh, liberal theologians will try and get in there and pick away at that, uh, but ultimately it is a really strong proof for the historical uh, value of the Pentateuch is the fact that they so closely mirror those other civilizations. Any questions on that? So treaties is just, oh, sorry. Oh, no, 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 go, go. I hear you. <laughs> that just means the agreements they've made with one another so they get along. Is that what we mean by treaty and that? Or yeah. Um, and then ultimately one of the best examples of a treaty is Deuteronomy. The whole book of New Deuteronomy is a treaty. Oh, okay. And we'll touch on that here yeah. in a moment. And that's a treaty between the people of Israel and God. Right? Because ultimately they broke the law and they're trying to come back to oh, God. I see. And so they are, Moses, on behalf of the people, are kind of making this treaty with God. And you'll see the structure of, of Moses mirrors that. So I, I understand the part of the law codes and, and what you said about the treaty between God and Israel. That's what Deuteronomy is. But as far as treaties with other people, how, how do we work that in as far as up until Deuteronomy, as far as Moses was concerned, he didn't get to go in. They were supposed to kill everybody. Yeah. So there can't be a treaty if you've killed everybody. With other people. Yeah. Yeah, and, and ultimately, so the law codes and treaties are the two categories of ancient Near Eastern writing, right? Mm -hmm. And so we see those categories or those styles of writing appearing within those five books of the Bible, these first five books. That may not mean, though, that they are functioning as a treaty between two nations. Okay. Like, You're talking about just the style. The style. Yeah. The okay. style or the structure now, or the outline. Right. Okay, you're not saying that they were giving a place, God was telling them, this is how you're going to make a treaty with other people. Correct. Okay. Correct. So it, it would be similar to um, the Constitution of the United States, right? Some may, may copy that in order to start a club. You know, here's our rights as a club. Here's our amendments that kind of give our rules. Now, they're not creating a new nation, but 
but they are mirroring that style in order to create a group that functions within themselves. Just a question. This Pentateuch, though, was delivered from God. It wasn't copied from any existing influence. No. Okay, all right. So this was still inspired scripture. Their code is the true code. Right. Okay. Right. Um, what, what's Sorry. important, yeah, and, and the, the idea here is to see that um, this is handed down by God, but it's handed down in a historical time and place. So God uses the things that uh, are, are common amongst people at that time to communicate his, his truth. It, it's the same reason why the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, because that was the common language at the time. But when we get to the New Testament, he hands it down in Greek. Why? Because that was the common language at the time, right? So what we see God constantly using throughout Scripture is what are the people you know, used to using during this time in order to understand my truth? Does that make sense? We'll flush it out a little bit more, and we'll, we'll see if there's more questions. Um, we will see... Um, We'll see all the way throughout here, the categories of law uh, is there's really kind of three main categories of law, right? That there are moral law, that there is civil law, right? God does establish a nation, and then a ceremonial law, that there are certain elements of ceremony that take place. Did Justin copy this lesson for his sermon, or did you copy this? <laughs> you will see that this is... Uh, uh, pretty well embedded within scripture. Yeah. The uh, other uh, key kind of characteristic of the, of the Pentateuch that I've touched on here and there is that it is a historical <coughs> narrative. A historical narrative. Uh, the best uh, a kind of uh, another way to look at this is to look at this as, um, as kind of two words. National and series. Right? That this is a kind of a cause effect sequence. Right? God is establishing his people, a nation, that is the, the national element of that history. But then it is a series, right? He is telling you a series of stories based upon this people. And that gets started here in the Pentateuch and continues, right? So he establishes his people with Abraham. But then we see each of Abraham's sons, Isaac, and then we get Jacob, and then we get Joseph. And then ultimately after Joseph, we get the whole people of Israel. And then we get kind of this episode of them before the Red Sea. And we get this episode of them before Mount Sinai. And then we get this episode of them in the desert, right? It is a series of events all based off of one nation. So it's a, it is a national series, kind of like a, a mini-series that would maybe document the, the, the United States, right? You know, CNN kind of did this documentary of each decade where they go, here's a 10-part series on the 60s, and here's a 10-part series on the 70s, and so on and so on. Pentateuch, leading into the rest of the Old Testament, it's helpful to kind of see that is that we see kind of this cause and effect happening, right? Something happens in this story that propels the nation forward, 
and then most of the time something in this story has an effect on this story right 12 spies go into Canaan they disobey what is the next story they're wandering in the wilderness right the cause of this story has an effect on the next one it is a series there's a progression that is happening within that that is why it is helpful to understand who is writing this right who is the the person telling the story the human author that is god is the divine inspiration handing this down but ultimately there's a lot of first-hand witnesses first-hand accounts all the way throughout kind of helps us to understand what's important there through the eyes of the author the other thing is to understand that that plot line what is the cause and effect from story to story that plot line how is god continuing that on and on and on also don't lose sight of the setting the setting of scripture right especially in the old testament there's these wonderful references to where is this occurring right there's a it's a big deal that they're right before the Red Sea that then God goes and parts the Red Sea, right? The sea is a major part of that story. If you don't have the sea there, you really don't have that story, right? And understanding that and kind of beginning to understand kind of God's big picture of that particular episode is really important. And we don't want to brush past detail there. And then also understand the different characters at play. You know, who, who is God dealing with here? Um, it's kind of why we, we stop all throughout Scripture and have these genealogies, right? Uh, please don't skip a genealogy. Actually, a genealogy is a moment to kind of buckle down and study a little bit more and wonder, okay, where else did I see this person? Oh, so you're telling me this story here in Genesis? Pardon me, in Genesis connects to this story here in Chronicles? Ooh. And we begin to see the, the characters begin to connect and relate to each other. Genealogies also play a huge factor. The characters, that they are real people, historical people, lend to the, the truth of the fact that this is a historical narrative, that this actually happened, right? Um, that's why Matthew just, you know, I think from a, uh, an author, if you're just trying to get like a, a, a big book deal with, you know, Random House or whatever, nobody's going to start off their epic novel fiction, piece of fiction, with a genealogy. You know, like this is boring. But that's not what God's trying to do. God's not out for a book deal. He's not trying to make this, you know, into a movie someday or something like that. He's trying to show us this is historical. This actually happened, and, and it happened, and then he appointed people. He handed down his message of this so that it's recorded and we remember the events that truly did happen. And the characters, the people within these stories really lived, really walked this earth. They are historical. And so connecting that and understanding that all the way throughout is crucial. And ultimately, the, the reason why it's so important is we go back to the overarching story of Scripture, right? The overarching story of Scripture is the fact that man rebelled against God, rejected that harmonious relationship, and God is at work redeeming 
people back to himself. People back to himself. Not the earth, not the animals, but people. God is in the pursuit of people. And so taking that moment to understand that these true historical people, or characters, if you want to use more of a a literary understanding, these people really lived. And seeing how they connect, that cause-effect, that series all the way throughout, really ties us back up to that major narrative of Scripture, the fact that God is redeeming people. He's restoring us back to our relationship with him. Any questions there? You just brought up something interesting I've come across recently, and that is the way that they use genealogy, and I'll go to the New Testament and in Matthew, and the fact that he is reaching out to the Jews, that's his audience, and the genealogy he uses goes back as far as Abraham. Mm-hmm. Once you go to Luke and, and consider, that, you know, he's, he's looking at the Gentiles, mm-hmm. he takes the gene- genealogy all the way back to, uh, to, to uh, Adam. Mm-hmm. So it's it just connection there. That... Yeah, um, we'll, we'll kind of touch on that a little bit. The, you've got two covenants at play there. You've got, you know, the God's covenant with Abraham where he first promises redemption. And then with Abraham, he promises a covenant of forming a people. You know, God's saying, look, I'm completing both of these promises. And uh, one goes from Mary and one goes from Joseph. The other uh, characteristic is the authorship. Um, It is traditionally viewed that uh, Moses is the author of all five books. Um, but it is um, obvious that there, there had to have been maybe some small edits after his death. Uh, most notably, Moses' death is recorded here, right? If he was dead, who wrote that? We assume it was Joshua or maybe somebody else. Uh, there's also a few um, edits where the names of cities are adjusted to reflect the, uh, the readership of of kind of David and Solomon's time. So those kind of how, you know, uh, Istanbul used to be Constantinople. If we kind of refer to it as Constantinople today, people would be like, what? And I'd be like, oh, well, it's Istanbul, right? We might adjust that here and there. Um, But ultimately, we see that Moses is the one who God had pinned this and write this down. Um, And we see the New Testament affirms that. Jesus himself said it. Uh, and archaeology continues to support that. You know, I kind of touched on that a little bit with the law codes and treaties. Um, Moses, what's unique is receives the information in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, the oral and written traditions, personal experience, and then probably most dramatically, some direct revelation from God himself. Um, now, when it comes to authorship, Like any book of the Bible, there is a lot of scholarly discussion and criticism over this, especially uh, liberal theologians will try and come in here and pick a way at it. Um, We just don't have time to dive into that in each of the individual books. But um, there's always a discourse uh, or discussion amongst uh, theologians and scholars about that. But what is fascinating is usually... uh, those get resolved very quickly um, or you know some archaeological finding comes out and and connects a dot that we never thought was there before um, and we see that scripture continually 
connects itself together in that way. Theologically is our, our, our next characteristic. Uh, it is very, very important to understand when we are reading uh, the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible are heavy in theology, right? Theology is just uh, a fancy word for the study of God, right? What are the doctrines, teachings of who God is, right? So the first five books of the Bible lay down a ton of detail about who God is. And he begins to, you know, separate himself from false gods of other ancient Near Eastern civilizations. That God is, God's unique. He's not like any of the other ones that other civilizations have. And, and really prove himself to be the one and only true God amongst all of those people. And so theologically we see a lot. And, and another way to look at this, uh, kind of maybe a, a very simplistic way... Uh, in theology, we, we're just constantly answering two questions. Who is God and who is man? That's what theology is endeavoring to do, is to have a discussion based off of Scripture about who is God and who is man and what are their relationship to each other. Again, let's zoom back out. What is the overarching story of Scripture? An eternal, glorious God created man in his image to have a harmonious relationship. We broke that relationship and rebelled against him, and so God is redeeming man back to himself. So if that's the overarching story, at each page we can stop and answer those two questions. Who is God? Who's God showing himself to be here? What is a reoccurring characteristic of him? What is a, uh, a characteristic we're seeing in a new way here? And really important for us is to look at this and go, well, then who is man before that God? And what should my response be if God is who he is in this passage? What's that relationship look like? And when we start talking about, and I forgot to get it on the slide, uh, when we're talking about relationships, we come to a very particular word here in the Pentateuch, and that's covenant touched on that just a little bit before here. So that would be our fifth thing, is covenants. Um, all but one of the major Old Testament covenants is found here in the, in, in the Pentateuch. Right? We have a covenant that God makes with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, and with Moses. The only major covenant to sit outside the Pentateuch is God's covenant with David. David. And in particular, you know, we see um, the covenant with Abraham. We see a, a covenant of redemption. God promises to bring someone who will crush the head of the serpent. Redemption is coming. With Noah, we have a covenant of protection. And I will not destroy and I will, I will keep that promise. I will protect you. With Abraham, he makes an unconditional promise of identity, of people. You are mine, and I will keep you. And, and, and really, the Abrahamic covenant summarizes the two previous ones. They bring both of them together into identity. And then with Moses, we actually have a, a conditional covenant, right? Of saying, 
Here, if you're going to be my people, here is how you should live. If you live that way, there will be blessings. If you disobey that way, there will be curses and judgment. So the Abrahamic and the Mosaic, those two really establish the, the major thread of how the people of Israel should live. Another way of thinking about the Mosaic Covenant and the New Testament most commonly refers to it as the law. The law. So, spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin the end of the movie for you. I'm sorry, but I'm going to spoil it. The Mosaic Covenant is wiped away. Jesus completes it. We no longer need the Mosaic Covenant. It was just there to show us how much we really needed a Savior. But all the other covenants are unconditional. They stay in place. So God, uh, Jesus completes the Abrahamic, but the others God is still holding on to. Did you mean to say he completes the Mosaic? He completes the Mosaic. Did I say that the other way around? Sorry, he completes the, uh, the Mosaic, the, the law. Um, that's really when you get into Galatians 3. You want a, a great explanation of why that is? Go to Galatians 3. Paul describes that the law was our tutor. It showed us why we needed a savior, but Jesus has completed it. He is the perfect law. Any questions there on, on just these characteristics? Great. Now, let me just give you some tools, some how to interpret these books of the Bible when you dive into them. I'm going to go through these quickly and then leave them up on the screen for you. The first thing that we want to do is, uh, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? Put your, shoe, put your feet in the shoes of the first audience, the people who would have heard this for the first time, and begin to understand how would they have, have heard this? That's when you're probably going to need to lean on um, what are the events that led up to it, maybe what's kind of the setting, what's going on around there. But begin to answer that question. How did they, how did they uh, understand this text? Then what's really important is to try and just do a little bit of, okay, what's the difference between the biblical audience and me? Right? Where, where I'm sitting on the other side of the new covenant, the covenant under Jesus, that he completed all that. And I'm also sitting a couple of thousand years later than them. <laughs> so what are some of those differences? Write those out. Just kind of think through that a little bit. And third, what is the theological principle in this text? Right? Remember, theology always answers two questions. Who is God? Who is man? What does this text tell me about who God is and who I am before him? What is that? Number four, how does our theological principle, right, who is God, who is man, fit into the rest of the Bible? Does the New Testament teaching modify or qualify this principle? And if so, how? Sorry, and if so, how? Right, so uh, we sit down and, and we may understand that um, the Ten Commandments look a little bit different 
now that we have a New Testament teaching that modifies the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus summarizes them into two. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. And then he begins a discourse, a, a teaching of, of explaining that. When we're when we read the Ten Commandments, we have to view them in light of what Jesus said about them. So we want to make sure we make those types of connections. And our modern Bibles are so helpful with this. Okay? Please, I said it in my prayer. We are blessed beyond all reasoning, and we lose sight of this so often, right? You, do you realize believers have only had a bounded individual copy of God's word for about five, 400 years now? Okay, in the 2,000 years of Christianity, only about 400 of them have we actually had Bibles. And I would venture to guess most of you have multiple copies laying around your house. Not to mention the Bible or study Bible you've got on your phone or on your tablet. And then to go even beyond that, where this is helpful in our modern age, is the cross-referencing. Right? This 2,000 years of Christian history, of, of people answering these questions and writing them down, now those have been categorized and put together in resources for us to be able to use. What an incredible blessing we have. Man, the people in the 500s are like looking back on us going, you are wasting it. You know what I would have done to have that? A little tablet with all that information right there. You just swipe your finger. I had to go sit in a wood pew for hours on end to hear some guy read the Bible to me. And that was the only way I could ever get scripture. Because they couldn't even read. Right? So we have such, I'm getting on my church history soapbox. I'll get off. I'll get off. third grade the Bible I got when I was in third grade after confirmation, I couldn't read it. I, it was the hardest book in the world. I couldn't even, I didn't even understand it. Yeah, I think it was one of those. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, it was impossible. And, and now we have... And now they got interfacing with other chapters right. and, and they spell it out for you. It's right. It's a beautiful thing to be able to do. <laughs> Uh, lastly, how should individual Christians today live out this modified theological principle, right? And I call it a modified theological principle because what is the theological principle of this text of Exodus 20? You know, kind of understanding it from the, the viewpoint of Moses and the people of Israel. But it gets modified by Jesus. So now in our day and age, what does that look like? How do I actually live this out? Right? This, is a, this is an active story. This story kind of stirs us to do something. What are we going to do with that? What's going to come out of that? This is a, a, a helpful process in particular when we're looking at any of the historical narrative books. So that would be not just the Pentateuch, but... You know, Joshua and 1st and 2nd Samuel is also really helpful when you get into the Gospels in the book of Acts. These are helpful steps to kind of walk you through. All right, I am about to dive deep. We're going to go 20,000 leagues below the sea in each of the books of the Pentateuch. Any questions before, I, before we dive, dive, dive?
his language. <laughs> All right, let's look at it. Here are our five books of the Pentateuch. Uh, and uh, sorry if you're colorblind. I apologize here. Uh, but I've put the colors up here to be able to give you some distinction on how these uh, separate because they are uh, slightly different amongst themselves, right? So we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are our five books. I've colored Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers blue because they are the major storyline, right? That's that, where is God's people? What are they up to? You know, it's kind of like, and now in this episode of God's Disobedient People, we're tuning into season Exodus, right? That's kind of how you can kind of view that and look at that. Leviticus is an offshoot of that. It is the backstory. It is the, uh, you know how sometimes, you know, in, in movies or TV shows, they've got the book series that kind of fills in the details off to the side. It's not in the major movies, but those big nerds who want to go and read, you know, like say the Star Wars novels and get all of that extra history. Leviticus does that, right? It, it applies very directly to the storyline, but it doesn't necessarily move the storyline forward. It is helping us establish um, the handbook for the people, and we'll pick that apart a little bit. Deuteronomy does the same thing. It, uh, it's slightly different, though, in the fact that it is, uh, it is a series of events. In particular, it's a series of sermons that um, Moses is giving to the people, and he is um, uh, kind of reestablishing the people as a people before God before he leaves them. Does that make sense? Now, let's go book to book. So first of all, let's begin with Genesis. Genesis, um, what I'm going to try and do, and this, I'm going to put this out on book. I'm trying to create these little one pages of each book of the Bible for you, okay? So that way you can just kind of see uh, really at a quick glance, here is what the book is and then leave some blank spaces for then you to go back through, read the book, and maybe write your own notes in there, or maybe you come up with a different version of these for yourself. So I will get those available to everybody. First book is Genesis. Um, a key verse that I would submit for Genesis is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to Satan and the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, in biblical theology, we call this the pro-evangelion, the first appearance of the gospel, is this verse. Right? No need to go to the Romans road. We've got it in Genesis 3.15. God said, yes, you followed Satan instead of me. You rebelled against me. Don't worry, I'm going to send an offspring who's going to bruise the head of the serpent, and all the serpent, uh, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. All you can do is just bruise his heel. In fact, a lot of times when missionaries go into uh, cultures, new cultures with an oral tradition, like Papua New Guinea, uh, where I'll be going, um, they do not use the name of Jesus until they get to the arrival of Jesus. And what they'll do is all the way throughout the Old Testament only refer to the illusions of the Messiah as the serpent crusher. Kind of help 
understand that, that theme that's coming out through there. Some key chapters in the book of Genesis 3 is the fall and the promise of redemption. Uh, that is the, the establishment of the conflict. That is where we see the story kind of um, taking root for us, right? Uh, other key chapters in the book of Genesis 12 and 15 establish that Abrahamic covenant. That's where we see God forming for himself a people. And that is so important. Um, let me pause here and read for you from the book that I recommended, Unlimited Grace. In here, uh, the author, Brian Chappell, says, Holy identity comes before holy imperatives. There are two reasons for this. First, it is impossible for those who are unholy to do holy things. Remember, that's like trying to clean a white shirt with muddy hands. And second, the apostles want us to remember that we do what God wants because of who he has made us, and not the reverse. He doesn't make us who we are because we have done what he wants. This is established immediately in the Pentateuch. Holy identity before holy imperatives. Right? The law gives us the imperatives. Thou shalt blank. But what came first is the holy identity. God, our creator, coming to us and saying, you are mine. There's nothing you can do about it. I have made this covenant. I will complete this covenant. You are mine. He gives a holy identity first. And then he says, because, because you are mine, because I have given you this holy identity, and then we do this. And it, it's an act of obedience. The holy imperatives are an act of obedience. This is what where religion, this is the basic of where this gets all messed up. We swap the order. We put Exodus before Genesis. It's so important is to understand that the uh, we do not follow the holy imperatives, the law, in order to get God to like us and to choose us. Pick me, pick me, God. Look, look at all that I've done. Uh, no. He says, I've chosen you. I've made Abraham my people. And then in Exodus, he says, okay, because you're my people, you're going to live like this. And Jesus follows the exact same thing, right? He comes, he dies on our behalf, he rises again, he provides the way back, he crushes the head of the serpent, and he gives that freely. For by grace we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast, it is a gift of God. Then we see the discourse in the epistles. Okay, because Jesus has done this, we live it out in a holy community like this. As that's an important order there. That's a crucial cause and effect sequence in Scripture. So when we talk about the book of Genesis, whoa, these are huge. Redemption, chosen people. 
key themes, creation, fall, redemption. Wow. In the first three chapters, we get the whole book of the Bible, the whole Bible summarized, right? We see creation, fall, redemption all the way throughout, right? You're going to see this mimicked again in the people of Israel, right? He creates uh, a nation, all right? I'm going to give you a king, and I'm going to establish this. Oh, what do they do? They rebel against him. They fall. He sends them into exile, but he doesn't leave them there. He brings them back, and he redeems them and rebuilds the temple for them. Creation, fall, redemption. We see this theme that's established in the first three chapters repeated over and over. Um, I'm, I'm whoa, really summarizing here, okay? Purpose of Genesis uh, is both historical and theological, right? Historical, we're telling uh, history. And then theological, we're, we're, we're really setting apart God from any other God, right? This is why he is the one and only true God and the others are false gods. Monotheism. There is one God. All other were polytheistic. They worshipped multiple gods all around them. When the book of Genesis arrives and we get this understanding of who God is within that historical context, this was totally different. Okay, this made everybody kind of perk up and look. Right? Especially when, when Moses stands before the burning bush and hears, I am. Singularity, right? I am. He'd grown up in the household of Pharaoh, who was a god, whose grandpas were gods. They worshipped all these other weird gods that were animals and mixtures of physical features. There's gods all over the place. Then he stands before the one and only true God, and the one and only true God says, I am. Period. I don't need any identifier. I am. Sovereign in creation. Right? We see that God is in control. God is the one who spoke, and the trees popped out of the ground. God is the one who is over this. That there is no other process at play. There is no other type of accident that occurred. God is creator, period. And this is so important to understand, right? If we lose the fact that God is creator, then why are we responsible to him? Why is it such a big deal that we rebelled against him? If we don't have the sovereign creator speaking us into existence, forming us in his image, um, then what's the conflict of the story? And that he's the gracious redeemer. He is the gracious redeemer. And we see God's grace time and time again. Love that the name of the book is Unlimited Grace, because you'll just see all throughout scripture, God is gracious. He gives it out. He's redeeming us. He's doing the work of drawing us to himself. Now, uh, in these overviews of each book, uh, I'm going to give you an outline. Uh, these are really simplistic outlines. Um, uh, Bible scholars love to spend weeks and papers on end outlining and giving you different how to break down the book. I'm just trying to give you a simple one, just to kind of digest a little bit. Uh, Genesis, uh, uh, usually this is the most common one, honestly, is Genesis 1 through 11, we get the primeval period. This is a creation, fall, flood, Babel, right? Um, and then ultimately after Babel, when uh, the people keep 
pulling away from God and finding new and creative ways to sin, we see a huge shift in the historical narrative, right? God goes from speaking to the people of the earth to one man. And that's what happens in Genesis 12 with Abraham, and then we start what we call the patriarchal period, 12 through 50, where we just go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Follow them straight through. Um, and I can go on and on about kind of intricate there. And in fact, two months ago, I preached a sermon on 11 to 12 and why this is such a crucial moment in history. And really, we get our major call for global missions from that concept, right? 11 ends with God creating the nations, dispersing them, giving them their languages. It's one of the unique moments that we see God show up in personal form to make that happen. And then in 12, he tells Abraham, your offspring will be a blessing to the nations that, that I just created. So yes, I am focusing in on a particular person and people group, but ultimately this blessing is for everybody. My heart is for the world, is what God says in those statements. This is Genesis, as quickly and briefly as I can put it. Moving on. Exodus. Exodus. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Kind of key ideas there is we get words. God is talking to his people. And the wonderful I am statement, right, that opens um, uh, the uh, burning bush. But then also that we see that, uh, you know, I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. Well, this becomes kind of a calling card for God and his people. Uh, he was the one who saved them from slavery. Key chapters here would be chapter 12. We get the Passover, right, where... In Egypt, they sacrificed the lamb, put the blood over the doorpost, and the angel of the Lord will not kill anybody in the house if that blood is on the fence post. Um, this is where we see, again, a reoccurrence of a blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin. We saw it first in the garden, right, when Adam and Eve needed to be covered for their sin, an animal had to die for that. Abraham, when he's making a sacrifice before God, has to kill an animal. We see the blood sacrifice coming in the Passover, which really sets up the death of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> happens over Passover week. Um, so this is a key moment in Scripture to see that how is God going to redeem people to himself? And that's our, that's our major story. God is redeeming man to himself. How is he going to do that? He's going to shed blood. Ultimately, he's going to shed his own blood so that we do not have to pay the punishment of our sin. The wrath of God is going to pass over us and fall on Jesus. Chapter 20, we begin the commandments, right? Chapter 20, we see the Ten Commandments come, and thus kind of the rest of the law starts to follow after that. Key themes throughout the book of Exodus, fulfillment, we see God follows through on his promise with Abraham and that he's leading his people back to the promised land and he didn't forget them, right? So what he tells Moses in the burning bush, I have seen 
the adversity of my people. I have heard their cries for mercy. And God acts on it. God fulfills his promise. And then we also see God's faithfulness. God does and says these things, and then we see him act upon it. Yeah, his people are his people, and he's going to do something about it. The purpose of Exodus is both historical and theological, right? Historical, continuing the story. But then theologically, uh, we get a lot of understanding about who God is. Um, And I'm summarizing this. There's a long list in Exodus. You want to talk... Most systematic theology books are going to have a ton of Exodus references because God is just like showing himself and revealing layers upon layers of his character. Um, The two I choose to highlight here is that God is knowable and he shows up. There's a burning bush and holy ground behind it. There's a pillar of cloud and fire guiding his people. God is knowable. And most notably is that we see these incredible accounts of God descending on the mountain and Moses going up to him and talking. And that the finger of God, the finger of Jesus, etches in stone his law for his people. God is knowable. God is approachable. On his terms, he's a holy God. But he's not distant. God is eternally faithful. This is where we begin to see the far reaches of his eternal existence coming and connecting to human beings. And seeing that he is faithful. He is guiding his people. He is providing for them. They need water. They need food. God's taking care of Outline, again, I'm uh, really summarizing um, but 1 to 18, we see the exodus from Egypt. 19 to 40, we see the covenant before Sinai. It's kind of the two breaks. Um, again, if you're curious about how does geography play, Egypt, Sinai, right? Those are kind of distinct settings within that book. 1 through 18 takes place in Egypt. 19 to 40 takes place at Sinai. Understanding that we've had a geography change there also begins to help us see that Okay, what's happening here has shifted too. We go from, you know, kind of just purely historical narrative of God telling us what he's done with his people. Then we stop. Literally, in the story, we stop before Mount Sinai. And then we get this explanation of the law. So that is Exodus. Leviticus. Leviticus, where the read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan goes to die. Right? So many of us begin, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and then oh, early in the morning, it's uh, maybe sometimes hard to get through. Please don't. Keep going. Keep going. It's amazing. There's so much richness here, especially in the gospel. I mean, Jesus is walking through the Levitical law going, all right, I completed that one. I completed that one. Right? You know, Leviticus is the one that tells us that if you are clean and you touch something unclean, you become unclean. Right? Sin passes to sin. That's the Levitical law. But then Jesus comes. And the leper, oh no, don't touch Jesus, don't touch the leper. If the leper touches you, you will become unclean. 
What happens when Jesus touches the leper? The leper becomes clean. The law is complete. The clean passes on to the unclean, where before is the other way around. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, and then thus begins the explanation of the law. I think that this is important. To, this is how the book opens. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So God is physically present amongst the people in some way. And he is literally speaking to Moses. Isn't that awesome? Our God is approachable and knowable. Key chapter here is chapter 16. We get the Day of Atonement. Sin must be atoned for. So once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles blood over the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant to atone for sin for just that year. And then he has to come back, back around. Key themes here, sacrifice. Sacrifice is all over it. Um, Jokingly, you know, Leviticus is the smelliest book of the Bible, right? Because you just got dead animals all over the place and burning flesh. But with sacrifice, you get very specific things. You get identification, you get substitution, and you get atonement, right? I'm identifying with God. God, I follow you. I can't fully uh, receive your wrath. So here's my substitute. Right, temporary substitute, a goat, a dove, a grain, or whatever. And that provides atonement for me. This is huge in understanding. How is God going to redeem man to himself? How is he going to fix this conflict? Sacrifice. Through a holy identity, through a holy substitute, and a holy atonement. We see that God is present and approachable. Right, He's there. He's speaking. Uh, a purpose of this book, um, just to kind of be trite about it, it's a handbook of holiness. Right? Here's how you're supposed to be holy. And ultimately, the purpose of Leviticus that we see in the New Testament, the New Testament tells us, it's impossible to follow, to do all of this. It is God's standard, but we can't do it. So we need somebody to come do it for us. We need Jesus. But it is a handbook of holiness. I'm not going to give you an outline. Anybody who tries to outline Leviticus, bless their soul. That's a hard task to do. I think an easier way to outline is to really give you categories of offerings and sacrifices. We have burnt, we have grain, we have peace, purification, and we have reparations right, between people. Uh, and most of the book kind of falls into those categories. There's some other things also because you have the, the types of law that come out there. For the sake of time, I'm going to keep on moving. Numbers. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. Man, I just, you just get God just showing up in these epic ways, right? You know, there's no, like, coming out of light speed. You know, that's kind of cool, right? But a pillar of fire throwing down right in the middle of it all, that's pretty cool. Key chapters, right? 14, we have the record of unbelief and the 12 spots. That's where we see this take another turn. 
right? The conflict deepens, right? If um, you got the organ music playing, this is when someone would go, dun, dun, dun. They did it again. Here we go. The story continues. Key themes here, we have the faithfulness of God continuing throughout the book of Numbers. He's providing for them. He's present for them. Um, but a really key moment in Numbers is the bronze serpent. Just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. It is a key type of Christ. It is an image that Jesus himself references back to. Purpose, again, historical. We're moving the narrative along, but it's also very spiritual. A very spiritual book because we're understanding that we must teach the next generations about who God is, right? We're early on into this, and we're already falling apart. Why? Because the older generation wasn't faithful to pass along to the younger generation. I am the Lord your God who led you out of <coughs> Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And he didn't pass that along clear enough. So doubt creeped in. Outline is, again, geographical. We have Mount Sinai in 1 to 10, then Sinai to Kadesh in 10 to 14, Kadesh to Moab in 15 to 21, um, and then the plains of Moab for 22 to 36, and we begin kind of the wandering of people. We're going to go over, sorry. Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If we were to pick a key verse of the whole Pentateuch, we, uh, most Hebrews would actually pick this. They call this the Shema, the breath prayer of all of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as those verses continue, you see this beautiful description of who God is and who his, what his law is. Key chapters, 28 to 30, we see the cursings and blessings, kind of the understanding of obedience versus disobedience. That's why that's the key theme. The purpose, there's a lot here because this is a sermon, so Moses is just kind of packing it in there. And this is his last chance to tell it all to the people of Israel. So we get spiritual. Teach to the next generation what God requires. Theologically, we understand the covenant principles. Right? What does it mean for us to, one, be a holy people of God? And two, what does it mean us to have holy imperatives from God? Both of those are fleshed out and understanding the difference between obedience and disobedience. Outline, um, lots, again, lots of different ways. A simplistic way to look at this is the past, 1 through 4.43. The present, that's kind of where Moses hovers for a while, and 4.44 through 28.68. And then the last chapter, Moses is looking towards the future. Another way to break apart Deuteronomy is we have that uh, idea of the ancient Near Eastern structure. So when we look at an ancient Near Eastern treaty, it usually will have a preamble, a historical prologue, general stipulations, and then specific stipulations. And then we have an understanding of the blessings and causes of whether or not you follow this. And then we have a document clause, and then we get the witnesses to the treaty. So this is how all of the other people around Israel would do that. But when the book of Deuteronomy comes around, Moses structures it the same way, but instead of a treaty amongst two nations, it is a treaty between a nation and its God. Right? And ultimately, that's where we see it kind of including there with Moses is he's witnessing it, and, and he, he passes. Right? He moves on from there. 
Again, all of these things I will hand out in handouts to you. Quickly, as uh, redemptive themes, we have the establishment of the word. And how many times do we hear the spoken word of God? And then John 1 comes back in and cleans this up. Just in case you were unclear, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God and was with God. Right? From the very beginning, the word, Jesus Christ, is present. God is making himself known. And that is another redemptive theme, is that this is God coming down. Let us make man in our image. God comes down and forms man with his own hands. Everything else was spoken. So there's immediately a unique relationship with, between man and God. The, the languages are created. Let us go down and confuse them. We see God coming down, God coming down, and all other religions of the world, it's the reverse. We must go up to God. This is a major theme of redemption, firmly established in the Pentateuch. Sacrifices and blood, I touched on that. That's kind of a key element that we're going to see all the way throughout. The law, right? Somebody's got to come and do this because we, we can't. Right? right after God gives it to the people of Israel, they break it. And then the covenants. God says, I will give you a holy identity. You are my people. And then here are your holy imperatives. Here's the Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant. All right. That's first class. Any questions? Yeah. And I'll, I'll stick around in case you have some more intriguing questions. Well, I missed the first few minutes. First few minutes were just introduction. You brief me on, you said Sunday, we're not meeting Sunday evening? That's correct. Just next Sunday? Meet you. You are giving us nothing right. crap. Rigid. <laughs>